This is a listing of the top ten biblical archaeological finds of the 20th century. These are the big ones. If you had to nail it down, archaeologists asked, what are the best? What are the ones that are the most significant? And on the list of ten, the number one is, as you probably could guess, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Found in 1947 in the area called Qumran. We uh, go there on the Israel tour. We see that. This, this year we'll be driving right by it. We'll say, there it is. And we'll just keep going. <laughs> the second one, in 1966, found up at Tel Dan in the north, another place that we go on the tour, the House of David inscription. An actual inscription in the ancient Hebrew dating back to the time of David, 1000 B.C., that lists David's name, and it was a stunning find in 1966. Because up until that point, a lot of people were trying to uh, dismiss the possibility that King David ever lived until this was discovered. Number three is the Amulet Scroll, found in 1979, on the southwest slope of the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem, bearing the Tetragrammaton. An amulet, so it was a silver uh, amulet that was rolled up, and around this written on the amulet was the letters yad he vav he in the Hebrew, which is Yahweh. Very significant find. 1985, the Galilee boat was discovered at uh, Nafginisar Kibbutz in the Galilee, on the shores of the Galilee. We see that on the tour as well. The fifth one, I'll tell you in just a moment, the sixth find was the ossuary of Caiaphas. An ossuary is a bone box, and they actually discovered the bone box that held the remains, the bones of the high priest Caiaphas who was the one, of course, who condemned Jesus. That was discovered in 1990 in Jerusalem. The uh, seventh one, the Pontius Pilate inscription. Pilate was another one. The people said, oh, this character is only heard about in the Bible, nowhere else, so there's no proof that there was any Pontius Pilate. It's just one of those biblical fiction stories made up. Well, it turns out not so. In 1961 at Caesarea Maritima, the uh, Pontius Pilate inscription was discovered, dated back to the days of the first century, a proof that uh, Pontius Pilatus or Pontius Pilatus in the Latin was written on this inscription. Number eight on the list, the Ekron inscription, found in 1993. This was found at Tel Mikne, originally the uh, Philistine city of Ekron that was destroyed in 603 B.C. And on this inscription, we find out where the Philistines came from. They came from uh, the island of Crete. So they are not Arabic. They are not Palestinian. And so history has shown us who they were, and that was an amazing find. Number nine on the list is the Mount Ebal Altar. 1982 through 88, there was an archaeological dig on Mount Ebal, and the altar uh, is probably the exact altar that's mentioned in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 33, where Moses declared, Joshua, you need to build an altar at this site. And so that was discovered. And then finally, number 10 on the list is the Canaanite city of Ugarit, which was discovered back in 1928 at Tel Rosh Shamra. It is an ancient Canaanite city, a huge find. The whole entire city has been excavated. This city that was destroyed in 1180 B.C. All of these ten underline and underscore the validity of Scripture. But number five is the one that caught my attention this morning because of what we're going to be dealing with. Number five is called the Baruch Bula. What is a Bula? A Bula is a Hebrew seal. It's a seal that would be made if if a scribe was writing a scroll. They would write the scroll, roll it up, wrap it with rope, and then they would stamp it, typically with, with clay. The clay would harden, 
And then they would press into the clay. Prior to it hardening, they would press the seal into the clay. They found this small clay seal. There's a, there's a little picture of it. And you probably can't really see it. It just looks like a little coin. But they found this clay seal preserved because in the, uh, in the burning that took place, this was discovered, by the way, in a place called the Burnt House. Some of you may recall, and some of you will see, the burnt house in Jerusalem. But these clay seals, they would be hardened anyway, but the reason they lasted through the years is when they went through some kind of a burning or a conflagration when cities were destroyed, that firing would harden the seal even more, making it as, as hard as stone. And so they survived. This one, this little seal has written on it, belonging to Baruch, son of Neriah the scribe. This is the same Baruch that we're going to read about this morning. This is the Baruch who wrote the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 1. This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, You said, Ah, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. Thus you are to say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down, and what I have planted I am about to uproot. That is, the whole land. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord, but I will give you your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. Lord Jesus, as we open up the book of Jeremiah this morning, to a very personal message, Father, that you sent to your servant Baruch, we're touched by it, recognizing, again, Lord, the archaeological, the historical validity of this man named Baruch who lived in those days. Being in, in a possession, Father, in the Israel Museum of this actual uh, bula, this inscription. But what impresses me, Father, is the fact that you would take time to focus on one man. One seemingly insignificant man in the vast scheme of things, in the big picture, like many of us feel, Father, seemingly insignificant. And so much, Father, of how we spend our time as human beings is trying to find our significance. I pray we hear it today. Lord Jesus, I pray we hear it loud and clear. I'm asking Your Holy Spirit to do what I know I can't do, and that is to reach into the hearts of men and women seated here that they might hear You speak truth and understand what You're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, every Sherlock Holmes needs his Watson. Every Batman needs his? Every Frodo his? Sam. A few of you are not quite versed on the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. We'll work on that. Even the Lone Ranger needs his Tonto. That's one I never understood. If he's the Lone Ranger, what's he need Tonto for? Proverbs 27.17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, being sensitive to you ladies, I tried to look up and think about, well, okay, but what are some dynamic female duos out there? And after I got past a couple of them, Laverne and Shirley, um, Thelma and Louise, and then, of course, the biblical model, Euodia and Syntyche, who Paul had to say, I tell you two women, agree. Stop arguing. 
I thought it best just to leave the women alone. So we'll deal with, with the men. The Lord recognizes the value of unity. We see it in marriage, a, a man and a woman. We see it in our relationships. The Lord calling people oftentimes by two. Moses and Aaron. Joshua and Caleb. We see David and Jonathan. God pairs people up to do a task because oftentimes the task that He calls us to is too heavy for one man alone. That's why in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus sent out the apostles two by two. He paired them all up and sent them out to do ministry. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where He Himself was going to come. Matthew 18, verse 20 tells us, Where two or three have gathered together in My name, I am there in your midst. I remind you all, Brian and Irene are going to plant a church. Probably it's looking like down on the southern end of of Whidbey Island. And I'm still wondering who's going to go. Who's going with them? Who's going to be part of that team? Who's going to be a second man for Brian? A second woman for Irene? Who's going to stand with these two? I hope you're in prayer about that. Later in Jesus... Uh, after Jesus' ministry, we see Peter and John. We see them heading out together. We see, of course, Paul and, and Barnabas. We see Paul and Silas. We see them going out in pairs. There's godly wisdom in two walking side by side, paired up for ministry, back to back together, because ministry can be tough. So, Jeremiah needed his Baruch. He needed his Baruch. Now, if I didn't say anything about Baruch, if I just shared that, hey, we found the Baruch Bula, how many would be thrilled by that? How many would be impressed by that? Who even knows who Baruch is? Isn't he our president? No, that's Barack. (laughs) Baruch is an important man, though I don't think he thought so. I'm not sure he realized it. I don't think he saw his own hopes and dreams realized. In fact, what we see in Jeremiah uh, 45 is a disappointed man. And we're going to consider that. By all accounts, Baruch was more than a scribe, more than a personal aide, more than a helper to Jeremiah. He was a friend. He was a confidant. This man stood by Jeremiah when no one else did. At times when to stand by Jeremiah would threaten his very life, Baruch stood by Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, had a hard life. What about Baruch? What about this man, again, that we know so little about? It's one thing to watch a friend or mentor go through hard struggles and to try to stand by them and pray with them. But in the story before us this morning, it is the sidekick who suffers. It's the second man who is sorrowful. And Baruch hits his own wall. This is a very, very personal message this morning. Jeremiah 45, think about this, is a message from the God of the universe to one man. And that's rare. Usually scripture is prophecy through one man, but to a people, or to the entire world, or to a nation. But in this case, the Lord says, Jeremiah, you need to go talk to Baruch for me. And so he does. And Baruch is dealing with disappointment. If you have or if you are dealing with disappointment, if you've dealt with it in the past, if you are now, this is a message for you this morning. I don't know who it would be, but listen closely. We're going to break this up into four parts just to follow it through. Maybe it helps. The background is number one. The burning is number two. The bummed out... And finally, number four, the blessing. We'll start with the background. 
Baruch was a blessed man. At least that's what his name means. Blessed. Blessed of God. His parents named him blessed, so right from the get-go, either they hoped that he would be a blessing to them, <laughs> like a lot of his parents have hoped, or, or they hoped that he would lead a blessed life. We're going to call this son blessed. Blessed Baruch. And we know quite a bit, actually, about his background. Verse 1 of chapter 45 tells us his father's name, Niriah. Niriah, which means Lamp of the Lord. That's a great name. Lamp of the Lord. We know his family was influential, noble, even privileged. All of Baruch's family. His father, Neriah. His grandfather, Jeremiah 32.12, tells us, was Maseah. And Maseah's name means the Lord is a shelter. Maseah was the governor of Jerusalem during the reign of King Josiah. 2 Chronicles uh, 3 verse 8 tells us. That's significant. The reign of the great godly king, the revivalist, the restorer, Josiah. And so Baruch's grandfather served as governor of Jerusalem in those days. Jeremiah 51 verse 59 tells us something of Baruch's brother, Sarayah. Sarayah, whose name means the Lord is ruler. And he was the chief chamberlain during Zedekiah's rule. So these are all higher ups in Judean government. These are all significant people. Neriah, Maseah, Sariah, they all have got the Lord in their names. Lamp of the Lord. The Lord is a shelter. The Lord is ruler. And add Baruch to that blessing, and you've got a spiritually minded family. We don't name your kids this without having some sense of what these names mean. So mom and dad are looking at their kids and their grandpa, they're all named after the Lord, named for the Lord, and that's significant. But for all this background, Baruch is the second man. Perhaps as a young man, he had aspired to do something great. After all, Grandpa and Dad and Bro were all highly involved in government, but Baruch not so much. He's the second man to the crazy doomsday prophet. (laughs) That's going to be his role in life. He's the Watson. He's the Robin, the Sam, the Tonto. He would only be known as the agent of the prophet and most of us would never hear of him at all if we didn't wander and run into him in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's secretary. But, you know, at least it's significant work. You know, I mean, he wrote scripture. So he did have an impact. He did something of great importance. And at least he could recognize that. The work's important. I'm the scribe of Jeremiah. I'm doing something that needs to be done. And actually, of of the whole family, I see Baruch as the most spiritual because he's the one not so focused on the role as he is on the task of great significance before him. So why is Baruch so bummed out in Jeremiah 45? Even if he puts the family stuff behind him, why is he so depressed, so discouraged, so disappointed? We know why. The burning. Number two, the burning. Jeremiah connected the dots for us as to Baruch's disappointment. It begins right there in verse 1. The message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch the son of Neriah when he had written down these words at a book, in a book at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah the king of Judah. We know what happened. Turning your Bibles back to Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36. This message from the Lord is about what happened to a book that Baruch wrote. 
It's Baruch's response, his depression, his disappointment is in response to what happened to this literary achievement of his, this, this book that actually qualified as Holy Scripture. Because the book that Baruch wrote was the first release of the book of Jeremiah. You have the second release, the deluxe expanded edition. But the first release, something happened. You Bible students know what it is. Follow along. Jeremiah 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, this would be 605 B.C., the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day that I first spoke to you from the day of Josiah even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Well, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And that's the book. He wrote it all out. It's an important work. And then... Jeremiah commanded Baruch, verse 5, saying, I'm restricted. I can't go to the house of the Lord. Jeremiah couldn't go to church. They barred him. (laughs) I guess because they didn't like the messages. So Jeremiah says, Baruch, you go. You take this word with you. Well, he does. He says, so you go, read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. You shall also read to them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord. And everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book of the the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So he goes there, goes to church, and begins to read this out loud to all the people. And it caused quite a stir, as you might imagine. Even at this point, Jeremiah is still hopeful. He's, he's the depressed prophet, but he's hopeful because perhaps the people will listen. It's 6.05. It won't be until 5.86 that Jerusalem's destroyed. This is a message saying there's still time, but here's the judgment. You've got to turn. So Baruch goes. He shares this message from Jeremiah. And the initial response is good. This is four years after Josiah was killed. Josiah, the great reformer, right? So there were people in leadership still there in Jerusalem, people serving at the temple who remember Josiah and who recognized the reforms and the revival that he brought about. Good men with good hearts. And these guys heard Baruch reading this. The chapter goes on to tell the story about several of these men grabbing Baruch and saying, can you give us a private reading? We need to bring this before the leadership here at the temple. So Baruch goes in. He reads the whole scroll again. And these guys hear the message and they're impressed by it. So impressed that they realize this is a word of the Lord. This has got to be taken before the king. But they also tell Baruch, you and Jeremiah need to hide yourselves. (laughs) Because this is not the kind of message the king's going to want to hear. But they recognized its value. These were guys who were rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us that we are to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that is not uh, to be ashamed, rightly dividing or accurately handling the word of truth, the word of the Lord. Well, they did so. They rightly divided it, but then they brought it before King Jehoiachin, who, or Jehoiakim, who wrongly divides it. Look at verse 22 of chapter 36. 
Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the bratzier before him. That's just like a coal stove that sat in the middle of the room to heat the, the palace. When Yehudi read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the bratzier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the bratzier. He burns it up. He takes out an exacto knife and he just rips and shreds the scroll. The work of Baruch. And it ends up in the flames. Jehoiakim did not want to hear the truth. Now I know, given any Sunday morning, I pray against it, I hope I'm not right, but I sense I know there's always someone who does not want to hear the truth. Because the truth, hey, if we agree with it, we're all about amens, right? Yeah, preach it, Rick, I'm with you, woohoo! Until the truth begins to cut into our lives, and then we don't want to hear it. And then we just as soon come up with reasons not to hear it, or perhaps leave or not come back. That's what the Word does. It's one of the, honestly, most difficult things for me being a pastor is I don't like to offend and upset. Hey, if it's my words that offend and upset, big deal. But if it's God's Word and it's going out there and and people are angry about it, and it happens. And Jehoiakim is one of these. I don't want to hear the truth. He cuts it. Why? Because the truth cut him. Why did he burn it? Because the truth burned him. And the truth does that. And I think most of you have come to recognize that here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. That sometimes God wants us to be uncomfortable even in our comfy chairs. Sometimes the Lord wants us to squirm a bit and think about what He's trying to say. Because, you know, we're dense. (laughs) No offense. Let me just put it on myself. (laughs) It takes a long time for the messages to get to the center of the sponge. And so God keeps bringing it and He keeps working it. And every one of us have to face the question, either now or later, are we honestly dividing the word of truth? Are we accurately handling the word of God, no matter how it might cut? The word of God, we're told, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able, listen, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know what I can't do? I can't judge what you're thinking right now. I don't have a clue. Seriously, sometimes I look out and I see people and I think, they're not getting anything. And others I think, man, he's got it. And the exact opposite has just taken place. The person with the stone look on their face is totally absorbed and the other person is just like, oh, I'm thinking about where I'm going to go to lunch. <laughs> but the Word, the Word rightly divides us. It judges our thoughts. It knows our intentions. God knows. And so He puts His Word out again and again to convict and to cut because this book is a surgical instrument. And given to us to surgically cut in such a way that we will heal without a scar. That's how God works. Well, Jehoiakim wants the whole thing cut out. In verse 26, he says, he commands Jeremiel, the king's son, and Syriah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch the scribe, and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. So Jehoiakim didn't only want the message cut short, he wanted the messengers cut short. Do away with the prophecy. Do away with the prophet. Get rid of the penman. 
And perhaps I can avoid having to do with God. Guess what? Everybody has to do with God. Either now or later. There's not a single person who's not going to have to do with God. And He would that you have something to do with Him this morning. He would say to you, make it today, receive my grace, because if you wait to deal with me later, it will not go well for you. Well, Jehoiakim wanted out. And that's the background. You can go back to Jeremiah 45. That's the background of the story that we see before us in Baruch's life. After the background and the burning, it all led to Baruch being entirely bummed out. Number three, the bummed out. And that's how Jeremiah finds Baruch. In the midst of this mess, he finds him disappointed and distressed and depressed and discouraged. Baruch doesn't to really have appeared to have risen to the success of his family. Grandpa, dad, and bro. They, they made a name for themselves. Baruch, not so much, at least from a worldly perspective. Did that bother him? Maybe. Perhaps. Baruch then gets connected to the prophet of doom. (laughs) And so his lifetime will be standing, receiving the negativity and the naysaying of the people and even the threats. Did that wear thin on him? Maybe it did. But the match that lit the fire was when this epic scroll of Jeremiah was burned in Jehoiakim's George Foreman grill. It was in that moment that Baruch was disappointed, was depressed. On top of that, King Jehoiakim wanted Baruch fired as well, literally. Wanted to see him dead. And so here's Baruch's response to what had just happened. Verse 3, chapter 45. You said, Ah, woe is me! For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and have found no rest. Can you relate to that? God, you've made life hard. It was hard enough. And now you put sorrow on top of this. Three things that Baruch the Blessed says that the Lord hears and repeats back to him. Number one, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. That's what disappointment does. Disappointment adds sorrow on top of what's already a difficult situation. Disappointment brings despair and and depression in to a painful situation and add sorrow to pain. Not the Lord. The Bible tells us this is not, listen, this is not what the Lord does. Proverbs 10.22, it is the blessing, Baruch, <laughs> blessed one, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich or enriches and He adds no sorrow to it. Well, Baruch got it wrong. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. No, He hasn't, Baruch, because He adds no sorrow to your pain. That is not God's intention. And people cry out and they point the finger at God or they shake the fist and they say, Lord, why are you making my life so hard? Now I'm depressed on top of everything else. You're putting this on me. No, He's not. There is one sorrow. One sorrow the Lord desires every person to experience. Just one. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us it's the sorrow that is according to the will of God that produces Repentance. A repentance without regret. Because the sorrow that produces repentance in our lives, the sorrow over the mess of my life and the sins that I've committed in my rebellion, man, when I get to that place, I'm like, I just, I just hate this. And I'm sorry for it. When repentance comes, you know what comes with it? Joy. 
freedom. No more baggage. God says, forgiven. That's the sorrow God wants you to have because it's here and it's gone. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Baruch's dealing with the sorrow of the world. All of these hopes, all of these dreams, all of these attempts failed. He says, secondly, I'm weary with my groaning. Well, of course you are. Because that's what groaning does. It wears us out. That's what grumbling does. It increases weariness. I know. I've done it. When life's hard, when we start to grumble and complain, it just takes us down. It doesn't encourage. It doesn't build up. It makes us more weary. The children of Israel learned this firsthand. Psalm 106 verse 24 says, They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His Word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. That's the biggest problem with groaning and grumbling. You can't hear God. You're too busy hearing your own voice. Charles and I kid each other because I'm 48 years old and I already have the ability of grumbling like a very old man. She'll say, what are you saying? Nothing, I'm just... It just wears us out. There's only one kind of groaning that's good. Just one. It is the groaning that the Holy Spirit does when we are listening. When we are praying. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That doesn't mean grumble to God in prayer. It means instead of grumbling, bring it to the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to groan on your behalf. To speak words you don't even know how to speak. To say things you don't even know what to say. But to intercede for you according to the will of God. What a blessing. Sorrow that leads to repentance. The groaning of the Holy Spirit, not me. And we can seek the Spirit to grow on our, on our behalf, or we can take it on ourselves, and it just makes us weary, which leads to the third problem where Baruch says, I've found no rest. It's ironic, but sleeplessness is often symptomatic of depression. And those who struggle with depression, even clinical depression, oftentimes will want to sleep all day, but in the night just cannot sleep. They're too sorrowful. They're too weighted down by all of the despair. And this is where Baruch is. He's saying, I I found no rest. I'm weary, but I can't sleep. Anybody ever been there? Exhausted, but you're tossing and turning and you can't get... Just All I need is a little sleeper and I'll feel better. Do you see the progression here for Baruch? Sorrow leading to groaning, leading to no rest. It is the downward spiral of depression. We've talked about this before. Psychologically speaking, you start in one place and life starts to get hard and you just take yourself down until you're immobilized. That's where we find Baruch. Disappointment steals peace. It is an exhausting frame of mind. If you want peace, if you want rest, listen, Psalm 4, verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. You see, it really is the blessing of the Lord that makes truly rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. Well, the Lord compassionately answers Baruch's complaints. Baruch has three complaints. God gives four answers to it. He gives first an empathetic perception. Verse 4. 
Thus you are to say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am about to tear down, and what I have planted I am about to uproot, that is the whole land. Thanks for that, Lord. I'm bummed out here. And you're just telling me more judgment? More despair? More to be bummed out about? I don't believe that's what he's doing at all. He is giving, with great empathy, a completely different perception to Baruch. See, Baruch is like this. He has eyes down. He is looking in at his own life and heart. and It's depressing in there. And God says, I want you to get a wider view than this, Baruch. You lost the scroll. I get it. You're bummed. Your scroll was burned. My entire land is going to be burned. This one message that you wrote of such great importance, and it was important, has been torn up. My people are about to be torn up. In other words, Baruch, I get it. I understand. I know where you are. I know what it's like to see all of your efforts and hopes and dreams go up in flames. I know what it's like to see it turned to ashes. And if you've ever felt like the work in your life was worthless, guess what? This is incredible. God knows how that feels. God, the great Creator, knows failure. Can you say that, Rick? Well, He watched Adam and Eve sin against Him in the garden. That was the first failure. So any parent who's ever seen your kid go off the deep end, guess what? God was the first dad to watch his kids do that. He knows how failure feels. Not that he's going to fail. He's not. Not that the land is going to end up totally decimated. He's going to restore it. That's that's in the future. Absolutely. He's going to carry out his plans. But in the meantime, for 900 years in the promised land, God's people have rejected him. God's people have rebelled against Him to the point that in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, He says, What more was there to do for My vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So don't think for a moment, if you feel like a failure, that God doesn't know exactly where you're at. And then He comes as a man, puts on flesh, And His own people deny Him and revile Him and crucify Him. And the Bible tells us He was in the world, John 1 verse 10, and though the world was made through Him, the world didn't know Him. The Creator comes on the scene and people are like, who are you? Um, God made you, gave you life. Don't remember that. Okay. John chapter 1, verse 11 says He came to His own, the Jewish people, and those who were His own didn't receive Him. There's great empathy in this as He says to Baruch, I get it. Your scroll was burned. My land is going to be burned. I understand where you're coming from. He offers an empathetic perception. Number two, He offers an an enhanced perspective. Baruch, I know that you've got this little problem. But let's widen your view a bit. My friends, whatever our disappointments are, they are tiny. Pastor, if you don't understand, my entire life has been a disappointment. That is tiny. That's a drop in the bucket of all eternity. We get into a a situation where life is going wrong or things aren't turning out the way we had hoped. We get disappointed and depressed and all of a sudden everything caves in and God goes, (laughs) this is just... 
I know it feels big right now, but get a wider perspective. Whatever our setbacks, whatever our disappointments, listen, God is doing something big. Something marvelous. Baruch, you're going to rewrite the scroll. And it's going to be better the second time. The land is going to be restored. I'm going to bring about my millennial kingdom. God's going to restore the entire world. Dead lives be made alive again. So remember this. The next time you're disappointed about something that hasn't turned out, a job, a marriage, a professional dream, some plan that you had that just fell through, remember that even in our disappointments, God is working something beautiful out. He's doing something great. He was in Baruch. Insignificant Baruch, (laughs) whose bula we still have. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far, far beyond all comparison. Okay, let's talk about Paul's disappointment. Momentary light affliction is how he describes being stoned, shipwrecked, kicked out of every decent town in the Middle East, left for dead, his life threatened over and over and over, and he goes, ah, momentary light disappointment. No big. Paul had a bigger perspective. And Paul had, number three, what the Lord, I think, wants to give Baruch here, and that is an essential peace. An essential peace. Verse five. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Are you? Are you seeking great things for yourself? God says, stop it. The greater goal that you set for yourself in this world, the greater the chance that it's going to completely fail. Okay, so what am I supposed to do, Rick? Just sit around and do nothing? No. David wrote in Psalm 131 what has become one of my favorites. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. And we talked about this on Thursday night at prayer. Les was sharing how that that picture, and it's such a beautiful picture of the weaned child. That's the child that's no longer nursing. So the child isn't facing forward. The child is now resting on the lap. Resting on mama's lap where his ear is close to her heart. He can hear the heartbeat. He can feel mom's breath on him. And he's looking the direction mama is. And in the same way, like weaned children who don't... We don't busy ourselves. We don't concern ourselves with all the big things of this world. With all the epic issues. With the great things that we could do. Now... We just sit on our Father's lap. We listen for His heart. We feel His breath, His Spirit upon us. And we look where He's looking. That's peace. That is not the kind of peace we get in the world. Peace in a checkbook. Peace in investments. Peace in success. Peace in great accomplishments. You're not going to find peace there. Because every single great accomplishment of all those that I just listed will require more work of you. 
and will continue to demand and dog you for more and more. It's never enough. You will not find peace there. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Now there's something great we can sink our teeth into. Seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to stress and strive over all this. Just seek the kingdom. Let the kingdom be the issue. And the kingdom is not temporal. The kingdom is eternal. As opposed to self right now, the kingdom, seeking the kingdom, that brings peace and contentment. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what happens here. Nothing can disappoint me such that it removes my hope when I'm seeking the kingdom because hope does not disappoint Romans 5.5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The hope of the Lord is not tied to temporary things which always fail us in the end. The hope of the Lord is tied to eternal things. Kingdom issues. Lives saved by Jesus. Well, verse 5, let's finish this. The Lord ends up by saying, I'm going to bring disaster on all flesh. (laughs) That's big picture, by the way. That's not just a fall of Judah. That's not just the fall of Jerusalem. I'm going to bring disaster, he says, on all flesh. He's talking about the tribulation. He is now talking about final judgment where this entire world will be judged. But, he says, I will give your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. Baruch, you're embattled. I'm going to give you your life as spoils in this war. You get your life. Really? Because, Lord, see... That's what I've been complaining about is my life. And you're giving me my life. Great. (laughs) And maybe you would hear the Lord. Here on a Sunday morning, someone say, Hey, God gives you your life. Yeah, but my life stinks. Why would I want my life? (laughs) Terrific. There's more going on here. Obviously, God is saying, Baruch, you're going to live. Which is more than would happen for Jeremiah, who we believed probably was stoned to death in Egypt by his own people. Not Baruch. And Baruch, Jehoiakim, he can't touch you. Nebuchadnezzar, it's not going to be a threat to your life. Your own people, they're not going to harm you. Your life is my blessing, Baruch. Well, let's take this a little further. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I'll tell you what, 99 out of 100 sermons that I've heard on John 10.10 try to say that God wants to give you a happy life now. And that is a complete misrepresentation of the words of Christ. Listen to the context. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to give you life. Okay, so what can the thief take from us? Just all of my stuff. And he can leave my body dead. So much for my life. The thief, the enemy, Satan, is working against all the plans of God and wants to mess up everything possible that we have, even to the point of taking our lives. Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body. (laughs) Be afraid of those who can kill the soul, of the one who can kill the soul. The thief can cause all kinds of problems. He can set off bombs at marathons. Um, The thief can motivate shooters in schoolhouses and malls and movie theaters. The thief can terrorize. The thief can undermine. 
But the life, listen, the life that He cannot steal or kill or destroy is the life saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the abundant life Jesus promises. And yes, it starts right now. It starts by being born again, by giving your life to Jesus and walking with Him. Just trusting Him. Not involving yourself with things too big for you, as He says to Baruch, don't seek the great things. You just seek Me. You just seek the kingdom. Romans 8.38 says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Baruch, your treasure, your spoils, it's your life. By the way, that word... Translated booty. And I I get a giggle out of that just like everybody else. (laughs) But it's spoils of war. Right? That same exact word is used by the Lord speaking to Jesus in Isaiah 53. When He says, I'll give you your life. If you'll be faithful to me even to death, I'm going to prolong your days. How's that work? Resurrection. Jesus resurrected. Jesus receives His life as spoils. He receives our lives as spoils as well. And I just, I love this short little passage. Because in it, we see a man bummed out, bitterly disappointed, who needed to hear from the Lord. And he did. God knew that. I love that God knew that. Here in the epic book of Jeremiah, God says, oh, hey Jeremiah, quick, I need you to jot something down and take it to Baruch for me. This is a God for whom every single tiny person insignificant in this world matters with great significance. You realize that right now, in the world around us, nobody's thinking about you? Except maybe you? Or parents, your child who just wet himself in Sunday school? They're thinking about you. Nobody's thinking about you. Insignificant. Oh, but I've done that. It doesn't matter. No one cares about you right now. Who can name ten of the people who were either killed or injured in the bomb attacks this last week? Anyone? God can. He knows every name. He knows every person. And he looks down and says, Baruch's bummed. He needs a word. He's disappointed. Jeremiah, I need you to talk. To my second man. Baruch, the second man. You know what? I'm a second man. Second son of two boys, born and raised by Bob and Brenda Crawford. But that's not the second man that matters. I'm the second man. Born of the blood of Christ. I am the better version of the old Rick. Well, Rick, that's not very good. Hey, I'm working on it. He's working on it. It's called sanctification. But I am now the blessed man. The second man is the one you want to be. The second woman, not the first one. You want to be the second. Colossians 3, three for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Let me just ask, anyone here want to be born again today? If you haven't already been? Because this is the promise. Amen. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. 
If you want to be born again to a new life in Jesus Christ, and it is a life of hope, and it is not a life of disappointment, so long as our eyes are fixed on Him instead of ourselves. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have been born not of seed which is perishable. See, perishable is everything we do in this life. Except tell someone about Jesus. You have been born of seed that is imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. If you want to be born again today, raise your hand. The Bible says that we can start the imperishable life today by confessing with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's Romans 10.9. Lord Jesus, we confess with our mouths Jesus Christ is Lord. And Lord, we believe in our hearts that God raised You from the dead. We believe in the life that You promised, the abundant life. And we so desire for it to begin today, right here, right now. Lord, for those who pray this prayer, I ask that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit to obedience. Lord, that there will be new life erupting out of this. Father, lead us all, because there are many born-again people here this morning who have suffered or are suffering disappointment right now. And we need the same word, the same sensitive touch, the same empathy that you showed Baruch. Would you show it to us in our hearts now, Lord? Encourage your children. Encourage your family. And take us out of disappointment and into the hope of life eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say one last thing to you. If you have been born again, you've given your life to Jesus, but you have never been baptized, we're going to do Baptism Sunday. And I'll tell you when. We'll pick a day, but it's going to be in May. We'll have another one in June. We'll have one in July. And we'll have one in August. It's just a set Sunday. Now, we'll do it any time. Because the pond is always there. <laughs> but we'll set specific Sundays that will be baptism Sundays. And there are several who haven't been baptized yet. We'll just make it easy for you to show up, bring your stuff, and we'll get it done.